The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, everybody. We'll be reading from John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42 this morning. If you have one of the Bibles that's laid out around the room, that starts on page 1066. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, It's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the, ones who, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers." They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. God bless the reading of his word. Amen, amen. Thank you, Andrew. Let's, let's, let's pray together. Um, Father in heaven, my simple prayer uh, for our time together right now is, Lord, would you use me to speak uh, to the hearts of all of us, myself included? I want to be able to communicate on your behalf. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The best way that I can summarize where we've been, because this is really the third part sermon that we've been on the same topic of the Samaritan woman and Jesus' interaction with her. And I can't say it enough. Even the disciples coming up saying that they were surprised that Jesus was talking to a woman. So ladies, if I can... I just want to make eye contact with you. Even though I only have one set of eyes, I'd like for you to pretend I'm looking at you. I don't want us to miss the fact that Jesus, from the start of his ministry, I can even imagine as a child, knew how to treat a woman. So if you are looking for a place to know your value, your worth, your giftings, the ways that you can lead and to be celebrated and a place where you have never had any baggage. Like there's, not a, there's nothing attached to you, no, no preconceived notions, no limitations, nothing. Jesus is the center of that for you. So much of this world has been a failure to you. So much of this world has hindered you, spoken badly to you, held you back, so to speak. Um, and I, I honestly believe, 
And I could make a strong case that I'm not going to historically map out today. But I honestly believe that this interaction with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, plus several other passages in the Gospels that talk about Jesus interacting with women, changed the way that women are dealt with in the world today. So we are at where we are because 2,000 years of Jesus' mindset has begun to set ladies free. All right? So much of history has painted a terrible narrative. But we are reading a passage that was I, what I believe is one of the origins for what it was like for you to begin to see that you are the daughter of the Most High God. There was actually a phrase that went around in the first century that, not a phrase, it was more or less a statement that the rabbis in the first century would go around saying. And the, the phrase is this, and I put it on the screen for you. It is better that the words of the law be burned than to be delivered to a woman. So when the disciples come up and say, oh, Jesus is talking to a woman, I, I want you to understand this is what they had, they had known up until they see Jesus with a, a Samaritan woman. So if we could take the worst of our country towards people of brown skin and mix it with the limitations and the ways that women have been treated and you put it into the same story, can I say to all of you that have a different skin tone or that are female that Jesus has always seen your value and your worth? Jesus has set an example of the ways in our humanity that we don't know how to treat people. And if we miss that in this story, then we've missed so much of the story. It's not just about a woman who had multiple husbands that meets Jesus and experiences salvation in Jesus. This is a story about a woman that needed to meet Jesus, but a woman that needed to be an example of what Jesus feels about women and a woman that could set an example of what Jesus feels like of people that are not like him in his origin, non-Jew different skin tone, different ethnicity, different race, all of the things, anything that we could label on this as being different, Jesus says you have worth, you have value. And if we come to this particular passage and we miss the power that is in this, then we are going to so limit our abilities to know what that means for us today. I believe that Jesus was healing so many things in this passage the, the disciples needed their minds renewed. I also believe that you and I, as we talked about last week, need our minds renewed. Paul told the church in Rome as he was ending his letter to them that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to renew our minds. Why do we need our minds renewed? Because there is cultural programming that needs to be unprogrammed. And then there's just also the sin nature in us that leads us towards evil. And many times I use myself as an example of how certain instances bring out what's really in my heart. All you need to do is take a ride in the car with my wife and I, and she'll be happy to tell you all of the ways in which the evil one still uses my broken humanity when I'm behind the wheel of the car and people don't drive the way that I believe they should be driving, especially if you're the slow car in the fast lane. Um, 
I am notoriously the one that flashes the high beams behind them, like three feet behind the car, just praying that they're not the type of person that likes to touch the brake. Um, you know, so there's things in me that are still broken, right? And the things still in you that are still broken. But the thing that I love is that Jesus sees us. He sees us. And no matter what people have labeled you as, we talked last week briefly about how many times in order to devalue somebody, we call them something other than their name. Like in this story, this woman was not called, let's just say her name was Martha because it's a very biblical female name. Her name was Martha. We don't call her by her name. We call her what in this story? Samaritan because it degrades her. It, it tears her down. It doesn't show her full value as a human that is created in the image of God. And so often what we do is we call people by names that could be interpreted as less than they are. Cowboys did that to Native Americans. They called them savages, right? So by exterminating savages, they weren't human. We did that with in the slavery era, and we've done that through slavery in many other instances, right? Through different people groups. That's happening around the world right now between different places where genocide is taking place. Anytime you can label somebody by their religion, by their ethnicity, by their nationality, and they don't carry a name, they're carrying something less. And we've got to be careful that we don't do the same thing. Like some of you would be like, with the political tone, you Trumpers, right? You're less than human if you voted for Trump, right? We also do the same thing with, oh, those Democrats or those Republicans. It allows us to devalue them so that wherever we are, we can pull them down. We've got to be very careful when we assign a label because many times that label is showing what's in our heart and how little we think of the person that we're talking about. We've got to be very careful. It's okay to talk about the Houston Texans today in a bad way, all right? So, um, so there is brainwashing, and so we put this on a slide last week for you. Um, but what the gospel of Jesus does is to administer a hard reset, to restart the brain, the moral sensibility into working properly for the first time. What we need in our faith and in our life is for that particular thing to take place. And that's why today I'm choosing to stand behind the table. If you've been with us for the weeks prior, usually we teach from in front of the table. But I really want you guys to look at me through this table illustration today. I know that this lighting might be hard on your eyes, so if you need to close them, at least look like you're looking at me, okay? But I want us to see that it's only through Jesus Christ that we can see. This provides for us a set of glasses, so to speak, that allows us to look at people the way that God sees them. The brokenness of Christ, the blood that's poured out, the combination of that is what gives you and I sight. It gives you and I life. And so now let me actually get to the subject matter of today. That was all introduction. Let me, let me ask you this. Have you ever gotten wrapped up into something that was so life-giving to you that you went all day long and realized that you didn't eat? Anybody raise your hand? Anybody like that? You've gotten involved in something. It was so life-giving. Like, on a regular day, if you went past breakfast, like, you're, like, totally 
using words by lunchtime like I'm starving, even though that's a word I don't like to use in my household because my family has never experienced starvation. So I'm like, at least say you're just hungry or really hungry. But, but you usually on most days are like, I can't skip a meal. I just, I got to eat or I got a snack. But some days you are just so excited about what you're doing that you just are energized for the entire day. I believe that that's what the disciples walked up onto Jesus. There's actually a passage of scripture in the Old Testament in Psalms 40, verse 8. I put it on a slide for you. It says this, I take joy in doing your will, my God. And then he goes on to say, for your instructions are written on my heart. So when I see a passage like this out of the Old Testament, and I see the disciples coming up to Jesus and totally misunderstanding everything from the woman to why Jesus isn't hungry. Like when Jesus says he's not hungry because he just had a day where his heart and God's heart was aligned and he was in joy because he knew he was doing the will of God. He was enjoying the conversation with this woman, realizing that she was feeling the love of God. Whatever we could think of, Jesus was all into this day. And he's like, nah, man, I've been eating what my father provided. And they turned to each other like, did somebody slip him a sandwich? <laughs> I mean, he's talking about things spiritual, and they can't get out of the physical. And let me just say this to us. This table can be just physical. It could just be bread mixed with juice, mixed with family, and it not be spiritual at all. But this can also be incredibly spiritual. And if we're not careful, we'll come to the table and we'll make it only flesh and blood. We can come to the table, we can look at each other, we can speak the words of the table towards one another and walk away from it just as an activity, much like the disciples walked up and was like, Jesus, woman, talking, weird. Jesus says he's not hungry, he hasn't eaten, weird. Not looking for what was actually taking place in this particular scene. So of course Jesus is meaning something else. He's talking to them about the excitement of what it looks like for you and I to tap in to our purpose. So much of church seems weird because we don't know how to connect what's written on our hearts with the worship, with the prayer, with the teaching, with the fellowship. And so church can just kind of many times feel like we just stepped into a program of events that took place that were nice, maybe appealing, but yet we're not fully connected to it because it's just physical and it's not like, oh my goodness, this is tapping in to the life-giving purpose of my life. Like you and I have something that God, I believe, has etched in our hearts to do some of it will be written about in newspapers for glory and splendor for all to read, and others will be just an interaction between you and another person, and that other person is going to look at you like, I am so glad God sent you into my life, but yet other people will never know about it. But both are life-giving experiences. Let me just share this with you. There was a person that pulled me aside this morning that wanted to tell me about something that God had said to them. Now, in the flesh... I can just be somebody said to me that God said something to them and totally disconnect it from the spiritual side of it. But did you catch what I said? Somebody in our church said that God spoke to them. That the Father in heaven 
actually said something to them, and they knew it was from him. And did I tell you that it was the first time that they ever felt like God ever said anything to them? So now imagine, just for a moment, what it feels like to be lavished with love and to be poured out upon as a spiritual experience. I believe this is what Jesus is getting at here. He was so fed by the moment and the perspective and seeing the light coming on in this Samaritan woman because at this point in time in the story, before we get to the very end, which where Andrew was reading to the very end of the story, I believe that she knew that Jesus was somewhere between some kind of fortune teller and the Messiah. Like, He's telling me things that, that, that somebody that has some sort of foresight is telling me, but he's also talking about the Messiah, and I'm starting to feel really weird about this. And so she just had to go tell somebody about this man. Like, I don't know, but all he did is he told me everything, and I never met him before. Like, that isn't a death, burial, and resurrection, like, evangelistic moment, but all she could say was, I can't help but to tell you that this guy told me everything. And there's only one person that we've ever been religiously taught that could do that, and it must be the Messiah. So everybody left town to come running back to Jesus because of her testimony. But after they interacted with Jesus, their testimony was, well, we came here because of your testimony. But because we met Jesus, we now believe. All right? Now, let me just say this. Does that not take pressure off of you and I? Like, most of us are bound up, like, what do I say to my neighbor? Like, how do I talk about my faith? You just tell what you've experienced. And then you invite them to look at Jesus more, and then Jesus, I promise you, can seal the deal. We might have a hard time trying to convince them that Jesus is the one and only, but that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is just to speak and to say, this is what I know. It might seem simple, but it was enough for me. And now I want to come and let you, be, let you see Jesus in this. So at this point in time in this conversation, Jesus has switched now from talking about food to the harvest, which for many of us, we might get food preparation, but we don't necessarily come from farming backgrounds. Have any of you ever grown a fruit or vegetable producing plant of any kind? All right, there's a few of you. Have any of you ever produced enough to share with other people? All right. Have any of you grown up on a farm? All right. Oh, come on. You're like, oh, that's so, that's so, it's so embarrassing. Like, you should be like, I am a farmer. Yeah, you should be like, yes. Why, why is that embarrassing? We're amongst a bunch of city dwellers that don't even know what different types of dirt are, right? You know? And so <laughs> we have, are so far removed from the farming analogy that we even miss the Jewish colloquialism in this that was spoken like, oh, you have a phrase that says in four months we will get the harvest, right? They had language to sowing and reaping. They knew that there were people that were going to go and actually get involved with the dirt. And then they also knew that there were going to be some that were going to come behind and take advantage of what their labor was and they're going to then reap the harvest. And so the implication is, is that sometimes in farming, the people that put the seed in the ground are not the same people that bring a harvest. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but we don't need to get into it. But something was taking place here because Jesus had turned the conversation that was taking place with the woman and her reaction. And 
somehow is beginning to talk about the boundaries and the fact that everybody, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, has spiritual hunger. Everybody does. It doesn't matter where you grow up, where you're from, all of that comes into play. As a result, now imagine, Jesus had been seated with the woman. I'm anticipating at some point he stood up to address her. She leaves. Disciples come. Now, um, what does it look like for a town to be coming at you? Yeah, I mean, could you imagine if there was just one street today that everybody going to the Ravens game had to go by or go down to get to the stadium, and you were in the middle of the street, and here you all you see is like 80,000 purple and black individuals coming at you and like 10,000 people in blue, red, and white that are going to lose and um, <laughs> coming towards the stadium... And, um, and you're there. Like, imagine the scene. Like, some of you live today in an environment where you're going to see the crowds either going or coming. Jesus is at this well, and the town, because of this woman's testimony, is coming at him while he's talking to his disciples, and he's saying, can't you see that the harvest is ripe? Like, you are looking at this. And then there's always a little bit of a struggle in this because, and I put this on a slide, you haven't done the hard work, but you're going to get the reward nonetheless. This is what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Can I tell you this as a minister? This is a really hard truth in this passage. And so it's hard for me as a teacher that came into Baltimore to start churches that actually gets to pastor and teach here regularly, but has a desire to see other churches flourishing in other communities. And looking through social media at other churches, some in Baltimore, some at other places, and seeing dramatic growth and them baptizing 100 in a day and their budgets get two commas in it and all these other kinds of things that are happening to these churches Yet, for us, I feel like our church is in the hold it to the plow and keep the rows straight and sowing the seeds, and it has been a labor. And so I feel the tension in this story of identifying with the person that's actually sowing the seeds, and I don't feel like I'm connecting to the person that's reaping the harvest. And so when I hear this, I'm like, but let's talk about the people that did the hard work, because who were they? And if Jesus is doing the four-month analogy, I would say that I believe Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. Because just a few months ahead of him, John the Baptist was out in the wilderness between Samaria and Jerusalem talking about the fact that people needed to repent and get into the Jordan River and be baptized anew again. And he's preaching this message. So I have a feeling that Jesus might be referencing John the Baptist, but other theologians can argue that it's going way back to the prophets because this woman had a narrative about faith, about her mountain versus the mountain that Jerusalem was built upon. And one day the Messiah will work it all out who's worshiping in the right ground. So this woman had been taught by somebody. Somebody had been sowing seeds in her life way before Jesus meets her at the well, way before the disciples show up. Because the disciples had gone into the same town where all of these people that were now coming to Jesus, but had they told anybody about Jesus? No, we missed that in this story. 
They went to the same town to get food to come back to Jesus, and the woman had to go back and invite the people to come to Jesus. So who did the hard work? Debatable, but I think that there were many others that had gone before the disciples and Jesus there that had begun to sow the seeds. When we moved to Baltimore, we were working, I, we, we lived on a Fairmont Avenue closer to Hopkins' main campus, uh, Fairmont and Washington Street. And we were working on Chester Street with a um, nonprofit called The Door. Um, and it's a great program that, that ministers to children throughout the whole school day and summer, as well as after school programs and job placement, all this kind of stuff. It's not far from Casa de Maryland around the corner that's doing great work. And when I was walking the streets one day, I saw an elderly woman sitting on her little stoop, which in Baltimore, that's like an outdoor living space, and you're invited to the stoop generally when somebody's seated. And I had met her prior at an event at the door, and so we recognized one another. And she was probably 70-plus. I don't want to um, say that she could have been 10 years or more older, but I couldn't really tell, so I'm just going to say 70-plus. But she was in Baltimore after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and the riots had broken out and, and all the things. So she had witnessed things as a younger adult or even as a teenager, things that had taken place in Baltimore. And this is what she said to me when she found out that we came here to start churches. She goes, oh, wow, you could be the answers to my prayer. She's like, for the last 40 years, I've been praying that the Lord would renew his church in Baltimore. So this elderly lady had been sowing seeds in Baltimore for 40 years that I was coming to her as a ripe crop. Like she was seeing a harvest. Did you hear how many years she prayed? I am concerned for your generation because most of the things that come to you come quickly. At best, it's seven years of hard work for some of you before you get to your goal. But most of you, generally when you set your mind to obtaining something, you attain at a very rapid pace towards other people around the world. And when we start talking about sowing our lives for the benefit of others and start to attach decades to it, I think it just goes right over us. But when you and I, like the psalmist, talking about the, 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 the joy that we feel when we're walking in the will of God because God has placed it in the will of our heart and we tap into that, let me just tell you this. He will allow us that to be the fuel that grinds us to pray without ceasing for year after year after year for people that we love, communities that we love, cities that are broken, people that, that need, to be, need to learn that they're free in Jesus Christ, people that have been told lies that need to be freed from it. It's not just, Lord, would you please help them and we walk away after a 10-second prayer. It's 40 years of saying, God, we trust you. We know you're trustworthy and glory to your name. We don't understand what's happening we, don't, we want it to come quickly, but Lord, would you please send a harvest? And in the meantime, I'm just going to continue to sow seeds and water them and expect a return. I know that since I met that woman, I can identify over 30 new churches that have started in Baltimore. And I believe that that woman 
could be, and now I mentioned there's probably many others, but I pray that when she sees Jesus, if she hasn't already seen Jesus face to face, he just comes up to her, gives her the knuckle punch, like, man, did you see what your prayers did in Baltimore? Could you imagine the greeting from the grind of sitting on her porch for 40 years and praying? Ecclesiastes 11.4 says this, farmers who wait for the perfect weather never plant. I think I need to face you guys. All right. Farmers who wait for the perfect weather never plant. Farmers who wait for the perfect weather never plant. Amen. Amen. Some of you are like, oh no, he's going to make me talk. All right, now here, listen. If you and I wait for what it seems to be like the stars aligning to get started, you'll never get started. So let me just tell you this. When we come to the table every Sunday as a way of responding to the teaching, that's the stars aligning for you. All right, that's as easy as it's going to get to talk to people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is where we get the courage. It's almost like it's the locker room pep talk before we go take on the enemy. Like, this is why we believe. This is where our faith comes from. This is where our hope comes from. This is where um, the joy, the love that we have to give to other people comes from. And so this is our rally and then we go out to take on the enemy with great joy, knowing that he's promised a victory for you and I. And some of our victories might take 40 years to begin to see what takes place. And so let me close with a couple of questions. The first question is this. When were you last so excited about something that you didn't need to eat? I want you to think about that for a minute. Can you picture that day? Do you remember it? So the follow-up question is, is when were you last looking with the eyes of Jesus at the harvest waiting to be gathered? Like when was the last time you were looking around at the people in your circle? So just imagine where you live, where you learn, where you're working and where you're playing, that your thoughts were about the people that would look like a harvest that was gathering. Now, if we put these two questions together, could these two questions have something to do with each other? Think about the first one. When were you last so excited about something that you didn't need to eat? Can I go back to the story that I told you just a moment ago about the person that pulled me aside and said a few weeks ago when Albert was teaching, I felt like the Lord spoke specifically to me? I could have left the building. I had already had everything that I needed for the morning because that did two things for me. Number one, I knew this person's story, and that was really authentic. This person would never tell me something I wanted to hear. They're going to tell me the truth, right? And the second is, is that I needed today to be reminded that God's still speaking to me, and I needed to hear it. I need to listen, expecting him to talk to me. Because I have a lot of stories of knowing that I feel like God has spoken to me. But yet, even with all of those interactions, so often I feel like that maybe God isn't talking to me anymore. So I believe that the, the, the joy 
of our lives feeling nourished and filled is because we are seeing the will of God brought out in all of this. And so the way this passage ends is worth reflecting on. Here's a woman who, just an hour or so before, had been completely trapped in a life of immorality as a social outcast. There was no way backwards or forwards for her. All she could do was try to find a daily existence and make sure she went to the well at the time of day when there would be nobody there to mock her. Like She chose the day that she knew nobody would be there. The time of day. Now she's becoming the first evangelist to the Samaritan people. And before any of Jesus' own followers could do it, she had told all of her town about the Messiah. And then they came to see Jesus for himself, and then they were convinced. They had given, listen to what the crowd gave. They gave Jesus the title that the Roman emperor had given to himself in that same century, the Savior of the world. I believe that John in his letter many times gives us moments, but sometimes I think John just lets the, the people in his story give us the moment. John, I think, could have stopped writing his book at this point in time because this is the truth of the entire letter. Jesus is the savior of the world, not a Roman leader, not a president or a dictator around the world. It is just Jesus. And Jesus is indeed the savior of the world. And to many, listen, this is offensive to many, even in this room. God's plan was Jews first. That's just the fact. If that offends you, I am sorry. God wasn't racist. He's not a nationalist. He's not anything. He just had a plan. He was just trying to get the world to know that he loves them. And he just started it. He picked a people, said, I want this to be your burden. And then Jesus came out of that and did you see in this story the comparison to what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says that he wanted the gospel, the good news, to go from Jerusalem to, no, no, say it, Judea to, where is Jesus? So where did Jesus start? Jerusalem. He had been through Judea. He's now in Samaria, and now he's saying to the rest of the world, I'm coming, all right? Where did it start? With the Jews. And then it starts working its way out, and it starts getting into places. But God's plan was it never to be just for the Jewish people, and it wasn't just for the Samaritan people, and it wasn't just for women, and it wasn't just for men, and it wasn't just against religious leaders. It was saying, for you all have sinned, and you all need to come to repentance, and when you do, you'll get a chance to see very clearly exactly what God wants for you, and you'll begin to experience life in its fullest. And you and I now have the opportunity whether you live in Jonestown, which is where this church building sits, or you live in Federal Hill or Mount Vernon or wherever it might be that you came in from today, but you have the opportunity to announce good news where you are to anybody of any tone of skin and any gender, whether rich or poor. We have the opportunity to say to them, you, you are a child of the Most High God. And nothing that this world has labeled you with compares to the label that God wants to place on you. And it starts with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're getting ready to sing. And um, 
I want our worship to be true. Father, we're also getting ready to come to the table. And I want the table, Father, to be honoring to you. And so, Father, right now I pray a thankfulness over the body that was broken. I pray a thankfulness over the blood that was poured out. Father, I pray a thankfulness that you trust us enough with this message to be stewards of it. Father, help us to walk in good stewardship, Lord. Help us to see people like Jesus sees people. And Father, today for those that have not yet committed their life to Jesus Christ, Father, would they have been brought into the presence of Jesus so much today that they want to be in Christ? And so, Lord, we pray for them. And for those of you that want to be in Christ, there's just a simple prayer that you can pray, and you can pray it with me. That prayer is just simply, thank you, Jesus. I believe. I put my trust in you. And if you prayed that prayer right now, I'm just asking that you let somebody know. The person that brought you, the person sitting next to you, there's some people with lanyards around the room that have, um, are here to pray for you. You can let them know. But right now, let's truly come to the table and let's sing and let's go out of here with eyes to see people and ready to speak. And if you need prayer, there are people to pray with you.